0: And welcome to the Trap Little Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Runcy. Our guest today is Tiffany Ballard, who is an entertainment attorney. You might know her on Twitter as Black L Woods. You might know her on Instagram as Black L Woods as well. Tiffany, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: So, you are an entertainment attorney right now in a time when the world is upside down and the entertainment music industry is in a bit of a shuffle. What is your life like right now?
1: Um, Believe it or not, it's still busy. I think because things are shut down, a lot of people are consuming more content, which means people are creating more content. A lot of artists are still recording. They're still buying beats from producers. Record deals are still being closed. Labels are still paying attention to research and how artists are doing as far as streaming. Unsigned artists are doing as far as streaming. And that's concerned and reaching out to close deals. So believe it or not, it hasn't slowed me down. If anything, I'm a little bit more busy than I I was pre-pandemic
0: do you think there's a bit more urgency to push stuff that was in the works or are people trying to come up with backup plans for things that they already had in the works
1: well i think some things are business as usual but other things are if artists are not out on the road doing tours and doing appearances and that sort of thing what are they going to do they're going to create a lot of people have setups at home they have home studios or studios close by they can go to and still comply with social distancing rules and so forth and so on and safely record music to release it. So you don't have to go through the whole, you know, back in the day, you would have to get CDs pressed and distributed and that sort of thing. Now you can just upload them or the labels can upload them on digital service providers and give them to the fans. So I think it's just people want to remain relevant. They want to find other ways to bring in revenue. So they're just out there creating.
0: Yeah, it's tough. I mean, I saw the other day that I think the baby said he was going to lose somewhere around five or seven million dollars. Young thug had similar numbers, and I mean those are the people at their level that are already making millions. so the people that aren't making millions, you have to imagine that it's just even tougher
1: correct and for producers probably not as big of a deal as performing artists because producers, you know, at the end of the day, you don't have to necessarily be, I mean, it's ideal to be in a studio with an artist, right? But you don't necessarily have to. So you can go and email the music and you, everything can be done through technology. But for performing artists who need to reach out and touch their fans, absolutely. And they make money that way, that's a significant source of their income. So yeah, that's a big deal. And merchandising even during these tours. So going to clubs, doing walkthroughs, All of that is a part of the revenue stream. And a lot of people, when they start to bring in that kind of money, their lifestyle also catches up, right? So on the one hand, it's like, well, I can live off less. Yeah, I can because I don't have that kind of overhead. But for people who are used to bringing in a certain amount of money, now they have this big old house, all of these expenses, these car notes or leases or what have you. They have full staff. They have to pay chefs and bodyguards and cleaning lady and whomever. It starts to add up.
0: Do you think a lot of those things will change after the pandemic? Because it seems as if there are stages, right? Once you get to the stage where you could have the chefs and the bodyguards, it's easy to be accustomed to that life. But I wonder if artists will shift moving forward, either the ones that have already gotten there or the ones that get there and then think about how easily the game can change on them.
1: That's a really good question. I think that's such a case-by-case situation because One person can touch a fire and burn their finger and never touch it again. Another person can touch that fire and continue to touch it despite it burning them. So it's really hard to say. I think it just depends on the maturity, the understanding. It's really hard to say. I think for everyone that won't take it seriously and won't save for a rainy day and scale back, there's someone who will. But I do think some people, they want to go back to quote unquote normal and they'll continue business as usual. I don't expect any of these people to begin, you know, cleaning their own mansions and cooking for themselves every day and everything. I don't expect that. I mean, at the end of the day, do they really have time right now? Theoretically, they probably had time to do it. But when you're on the road constantly and on the go constantly, do you even have time? I mean, is it even worth your time, to be honest, at some point when your time when you look at the value? It's like, okay, this hour I could be in the studio. I could be doing this. I could be doing something to generate revenue. Why even spend your time? Hours cleaning an entire mansion, (laughs) you know?
0: Even as professionals,
1: to be honest, they're professional, regular professional couples who feel like we'd rather pay someone to come in and clean because that time can be spent doing something more productive.
0: Right. How did you get involved with being an entertainment attorney? Was it something that was a passion for you? I mean, obviously, you have passion and experience and you're called on to speak on the industry now, but. Was there a moment that you knew, yes, this is what I wanted to do? This is how I wanted to get involved with this?
1: If you let my mom tell it, she'll tell you I always wanted to be famous or something, if you let her tell it. Okay. (laughs) But I'm like, what? I don't remember that. (laughs) But when I was a little girl, I used to have an obsession with reading the pamphlets, the pamphlets of the CDs or the cassettes that I would buy, I didn't know what any of these things were at the time. a and R. I didn't know what publishing companies were. I didn't know what any of that stuff was. I don't even know why I was so obsessed with weed, but I would read. I was just so interested by it. I used to try to rap for a little while.
0: What was your rap name?
1: I, don't, I didn't have one. I wasn't like committed to it. Like, oh, this is my... No, it wasn't that deep. But I did have a black and white composition notebook where i would write my rhymes and i'm so upset that i threw it away because i really want to know what 12 year old me was rapping about i could tell you what i was listening (laughs) to what i was listening to was kind of some of that stuff was inappropriate you know like the music i was listening to i'm like i wonder if my music reflected that or what because i was still like innocent for all intents and purposes but i did listen to not so innocent music you know
0: who were your favorite artists at the time
1: back then oh man that's hard to say I can tell you a list of stuff I was listening to. First of all, I'm from Flatbush, Brooklyn, originally. So a lot of my early music influence, there's some hip-hop in there, but there's also a lot of dancehall reggae. Because Flatbush is predominantly Caribbean. I was, like, one of the only American people in my neighborhood. They would call me Yankee, like, as an insult. A jokey insult, you know, because I was the right. American girl. Like, growing up, there was, like, this mix. On the one hand, it was, like, Shabaranks and Patra and Caputan and Bujubantan and those kind of artists super cat but then on the other hand there was like Redman, there was onyx there was mob deep of course eventually biggie and jay-z when i was even younger you know the slick ricks and the dougie fresh that's like the parents were listening to that kind of stuff so of course you would hear it and so forth and i would watch video music box and it would be special ed and nice and smooth and those kinds of people so KRS one all of that
0: Nice. Well, we got the Yankee thing in common because my whole family's Jamaican, but I'm the only person that was born here. So my aunt would always tease me and call me the Yankee. So when you said that, it like brought me back.
1: You get it. Because flappa's is more Jamaican than anything. And then the Haitians and 20 people and so forth and so on, Panamanians. Right. Yes. So you get it.
0: Yes. Okay. So you started listening to the music then, started writing your own rhymes. And then it's
1: crazy because. When undergrad, I majored in criminal justice, right, which has absolutely nothing to do with anything. But that entertainment thing wasn't necessarily a real or an attainable goal for me in my mind. The safe path was more attainable, right? So you just get a career, you know, whatever, a safe, something that's achievable and attainable in your mind. That was my undergrad major. I was an investigator for a while in the Washington, D.C. area. But still, that interest was still there. And I was like, Tiffany, You need to just take the LSAT and stop playing and go to law school. You know what you want to do. I was in D.C. area, as I said. I knew to be in entertainment. It would be New York, L.A. I didn't even consider Atlanta at the time, which in retrospect was really silly of me. But I did not at the time. I thought New York or L.A. And of course, New York was a safe bet because I'm from New York. I wasn't going to go away to West Coast. I'm not a West Coast girl. So I went to law school, networked with a lot of people, some of the relationships I still have today. My mentor I met while I was in law school on MySpace. I reached out to him on MySpace I got an internship with one woman who she had a firm, was a black owned firm in Manhattan. And it really made me want to do. At the time, they had producers Cool and Dre, they had Young Jock, they had Brian Michael Cox, they had Eric Hudson. They had a really decent clientele going on there, and it inspired me a lot. I was like, wow, it was three black women who worked together. And I was like, this is something. So it really made it even more attainable for me. After that, I went and interned in the legal department at Universal Music Group. So I got to see the label side of things. At first, it was representing the talent. And I got to see the inside, um, the label side of things. And I was like, yeah, this is what I want to do. So I continued to network and so forth and so on. So it was a series, I would say, of different events. Like I knew it was something I wanted to do, but I kind of put it out of my mind at one point. But then when I was doing what I thought was a safe bet, I had no passion behind it. There was right. no passion. You know, you, you know you wake up and you feel like you're missing something. This is not, yeah, it's a paycheck, but I'm not satisfied. I don't feel fulfilled in the least bit. And then when I got that first internship with those women, that confirmed it for me. Because even going to law school, I still could have went into a different area of law. But my first year summer, when I interned with that firm, that was it for me. I was like, this is it. This is where I want to be. This is the environment I want to be in. I had to wait maybe a couple hours for the interview because they were gone, they had a quick meeting with the client, and I was like, I'm going to sit here. And that's so funny, because I think the way I got the hire for the internship is because I talked up the receptionist the entire time. We were talking about Lil Wayne. That's back when Lil Wayne was just on fire. Yeah, yeah. So they're the ones who got, they had some other people they interviewed, and I got picked, but I believe the receptionist and the assistant vouched for me, like, oh, no, she's cool. Like, we talked about everything.
0: Sorry. Nice. That makes sense, and I, I like that a lot, because... I know a lot of people that have pursued the law school path, and I know that criminal justice is often talked about. But I do think that, to your point, it's often talked about because there's a lot of folks that look like us in that work. So that very much becomes the norm of what you may see. So you being able to not just see what's in your passion, your interest in entertainment, but going there and seeing people that look like you makes all the world a difference. So that stuck out. And I'd say additionally, hearing that business connections made through Myspace is what's up because that's a throwback. And I just don't think a lot of people understand what Myspace was about and that those are the type of things that could happen.
1: Right. Let me tell you something on Myspace story. Do you know, I promise you, I kid you not, way back when, if I can get in my account, I'm sure if I look at my sent box, it's still there. Way back when in Myspace, when I was an intern I reached out to Nicki Minaj's then manager this guy named Fendi mm-hmm.
0: at the oh time, yeah big Fendi yeah, yeah.
1: I've sent him a message on MySpace I was still in law school I'm like hey I'm still in law school so I can't offer my services but you know how could I be down I think she's going to be the next thing to blow whatever what have you I remember I hit up my boy Nigel Mack who at the time was an a and at Universal it was back then it was Universal Motown Republic and I was like hey this girl Nicki she's so dope Nicki Minaj you should check her out and Nigel he had signed like Kit Cudi and some other people he had circled back to me at one point and was like what was the girl's name again you said and I was like Nicki Minaj He he's like okay 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 it's so funny how it happened Nicki was moving around with different crews and stuff I think she was with Gucci in them at some point like different crews right, management right. and rapping and eventually she ended up signing to his same label he worked at but through Young Money because their deal the cash money deal was with at the time it was Universal Motown Republic so I'm like, that's funny but yeah I tried to get down with that <laughs> Way back, (laughs) way back. But yeah, MySpace was, I definitely used to use MySpace to network and that sort of thing.
0: Yeah, no, that was the hustle too. Wait, I'm wondering, how early were you on discovering Nikki? Was this before? Because I think the big moment was when she was on the Drought 3, right? That was like the moment when I feel like a lot of people- Before Wayne knew her. This is when she was with Fendi. This is Cash Money didn't know who she was. Oh, okay, so even before that, night. Okay, so you were up on that before, nice.
1: Yeah, because she was in New York. You know, remember when MySpace, you could add music to your page? At one point they added that as a function, we're like, oh, we can add music to our pages now. Yeah. So, yeah. some of Nikki's freestyles would be on people's pages on MySpace. And remember, I came across one of them, and I was like, oh my gosh, who is this girl? So I started typing her name in, looking for more stuff, and I found her MySpace page, and that's how I came across Fendi because I think Fendi might have been like her top friends list or something. Remember the MySpace. Nice. <laughs>
0: I do. I do. I remember that. I remember the top eight. It mattered who was in your top it eight. It
1: mattered. People would be offended. Like, <laughs> yes. Yes. If you, didn't, if you didn't have them in your top eight and I thought they were friends with you, they would feel some type of way.
0: Right. And if they weren't in the top eight, you had to mention them in the profile or something. Like, you couldn't just let it fly. So, yeah. So, that was the breakthrough. You got the internship. And then you're now with your own firm, right? Yes, I am. How's that been in terms of the transition from what you were doing before to that?
1: Interesting. It's interesting. I like it. But sometimes if I feel like something is, you know, really challenging or some, you know, I'll ask someone to co-counsel or I'll call and ask a question like, hey, this is a situation I have. How would you navigate this right now? Because, you know, I mean, the day to day stuff is the stuff. Okay, not a big deal. But every now and then you come across something that you may not have seen before. And it's always good to get like a second opinion or so forth. But I don't have a person who's next to me that I can go ask. So I have to pick up the call and just run. Situation by someone and say, What do you think about this? Or how would you navigate this situation? Or have you seen something like this before? But it's cool because I feel like my clients are my clients. You know, we're cool. I have relationships with my clients. It's not somebody else's clients who, you know, a firm I'm working for. And then when I'm gone, those are no longer my clients and so forth and so on. They're mine. So I do enjoy it. Sometimes I feel like, Oh, maybe it would be nice to have some big firm behind me. But then other times I'm like, No, I can take my laptop and go to central pay and do work if I feel like it, and nobody can tell me anything,
0: you know? Right, especially now. I mean, your clients themselves are doing their work digitally, so so can you.
1: Well, exactly. And I mean, I don't have to see them day in and day out anyway, so. But working for someone... Sometimes they want you to be physically in their space. So it's like, you no, know, you have to come to the office every day. Obviously not during pandemic times so when we're not in a pandemic. I mean, some people just feel like you need to be sitting there in the office and not okay with you working remotely and that sort of thing.
0: What were some of the common challenges that your clients would face that you would often work with them on? Of course, before the pandemic happened.
1: Ooh, it depends. Different clients have different challenges depending on the level they are in in their careers, right? The ones who are more established Not so bad. It's just regular business as usual. The mid-level career ones and the ones who are just entering. You know, sometimes people want to do weird business with them. And when I say don't do that deal, that's not customary. This is not how it's done. It doesn't make sense. Those splits don't make sense based on what you contributed. Those points don't make sense. You know, why do you have a co-production credit? Why does it say produced by this person, co-produced by you when you actually produce a song and they just found someone to give the beat to, you know, whatever. So especially earlier on, I would say the people that are early in their careers, those are types of issues that we have because people sometimes want to take advantage and they don't know the business. Also, they may be operating from a position of not desperation, but eagerness. They're eager to break into the business by any means. And so sometimes they do themselves a disservice because they want to be in the business so bad. And it's like, okay, I get it. But if your name isn't in the credits or you don't have the right split for your copyrights, I mean, is it really worth it at the end of the day? Because the credits are currency too, right? But yeah, I would say those types of things more than anything. Oh, and I'm gonna say, and if I tell them, it's kind of something that's interesting what I find and I'm like, do they do this to everyone or is this a Tiffany thing or a woman thing? I'm not really clear. But what I found interesting is that I have some clients where I advise them not to do a certain transaction and they'll be like, well, I'm not going to do what my lawyer said. And I'll tell them, they're going to say, your lawyer don't know what she's talking about. Sure enough, your lawyer don't know what she's talking about, man. This is how it's done. And I'm explaining to them, no, this is what's customary. They told you they want to do this kind of deal. Let me tell you what this agreement is that they sent. The conversation you got, because they're like, no, well, such, and such said it's only a whatever, whatever agreement. I'm like, that's not a whatever agreement. That agreement includes this, 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 and that. These are completely different sets of rights. They're telling you, they're trying to take one set of rights on the actual agreement that they sent. There are four different sets of rights that you can get four different advances for, from four entire different companies, four different... It just doesn't make sense to me. And they'll say, I'm crazy. Your lawyer, she's tripping. She's this is how it's done. No.
0: <laughs> are they saying that more so to try to push back on the client to get them to do the deal? Or do they really feel, deep down, they know that you know what you're talking about, but they
1: if they didn't know better they would be honest about what they're sending over in the first place right so they know better because if they thought it was legit they would say hey this agreement is going to take this set of rights you know we want publishing we want distribution we want merchandising we want this you know if that's the case if it was legit and on the up and up i think they would have a conversation not hey we're just going to go out and take this one set of rights and then try to sneak in another four. I don't even think when they have these conversations, they really believe that people have attorneys or so that an attorney would review the agreement. So they might just think, hey, we'll get lucky because that does happen. People will present a creative with an agreement and they won't have an attorney and they might even know how to get an attorney. They don't even know who to call especially depending where they are geographically and whether or not they're around other creators who can refer them to someone. So some people get lucky every now and then, lucky, quote unquote, I mean, me being facetious, but they get someone to sign an agreement with no counsel. So it's like, you know, you just throw stuff on the wall and see what sticks.
0: Do you think that this has gotten better or worse over time? Because I would assume that over time, you hear more and more of these stories about musicians that were in deals, that they signed when they were young, they now want out of the deals but people keep hearing these stories and now there's so much more education about why you need to review the contracts, what you should sign. So I do think to the outside, some may assume that these things would be happening less, but we still have situations like what happened with Meg The Stallion and others that I know you've spoken on. Like, do you think this has gotten better over time?
1: No, I don't think so. I think as long as people are, especially in the urban music space, I mean, at the end of the day, when you look at just the state- of Black America, generally we're considered an underclass or what have you. And some of the people that are creating are coming from places of lower socioeconomic status without access to resources, you know, financial resources, social resources, and even services, like having someone they can call a cousin and someone who can refer them to an attorney. A lot of them are desperate to get out of their situations. So they may sign something that they shouldn't because in their mind, they're watching TV, they're watching videos, they see the way out of my current situation is to sign this contract, so I can be making X, Y, Z amount of dollars, like Young Thug or the Baby or whomever. So I think it's pretty much the same. Hopefully, with all of the biopics, with the new additions and the TLCs, people would know better by now. You would think, and some do. Some do know better,
0: but obviously all done. And I do think that there's a bit of a personal removal of this. You can watch New Edition, you can watch TLC, see what's happening, but it's very different when someone hands you a six, seven-figure deal and you've never seen four or five figures in your life and it's like hey here's this deal are you ready to sign yes or no right now and i do think that it affects people differently and this is where it gets into the whole psychology of how decisions are made but i feel like things get a little bit different once it happens once you're in that situation for some people
1: well most of the time the situations that have got blown up publicly i'll say because i can't speak for the things we don't know right But the disputes that have hit the public sphere, most of them were not for a large sum of money, right? Based on the alleged facts, they weren't even six-figure situations, not even anywhere remotely close. In the case of Megan, who you mentioned, I believe, and I still, I haven't even seen that agreement, but I know I saw with people on Twitter and and social media saying it was $10,000 or something like that as an advance. So even with the new additions and the TLCs, what was it? Was it TLC that might have been getting a salary for thirty thousand a year or something like that? It weren't or fifty thousand a year. It was a salary. It wasn't even. <laughs> it's not funny <laughs> to give me <people> for <laughs> laughing. It's just utterly kind of ridiculous. Um, and, not, yeah. and I'm not judging them. I'm not knocking them because they're not attorneys. Heck, you can be an attorney and still not understand some of these things if you don't specialize in. You know, it's like a brain surgeon can't necessarily perform heart surgery, right? So it's not a knock on them at all. But a lot of these situations where people have gone into these bad deals, they're not necessarily making a lot of money either outright. But when they get to the point where they're making a lot of money, usually an attorney can represent them because if there's something to be made, right? It's like, okay, I'll get a percentage off the deal. I'll absolutely do this transaction for you. That doesn't mean that they still can't get a bad deal depending on whatever the circumstances are, but I'm just saying usually at that point they at least have someone who can look over it. It's when they're making a little bit of money and they can't afford to pay an attorney or they don't know to ask whoever they're signing to to get an attorney for them and they feel like I'm trying to get to that point, and this is the bridge between where I am now and me getting to that next level in my career. So let me just sign in. At least it's $10,000. This is more $10,000 more than I have in my pocket now. I never had $10,000 at one time in my entire life. This seems like so much to me right now. I can do this, that, and a third. But that $10,000 is really just signing away millions worth of revenue, you know?
0: It's interesting, because I've also heard people talk about this as almost like an unwritten rite of passage where a lot of these artists that have come through and then complained or wanted out of their deals, there's this chicken and egg debate about, well, could they have gotten to that point without that type of deal? Would this have happened without that type of deal? Let's say that we can take whoever's complained about the deal, if they had signed the type of contract that we would have wanted them to, or that they probably would have wanted them to, that's the better way to phrase it, would their level of fame that they've achieved to then be upset about their contract even happen?
1: I think it's a fair question because it takes money to make money. So if people are living in the negative financially, they don't have any resources even to get a song mixed and mastered, to get cover art, to pay to upload music to a digital service provider, to get visuals done you know, for a video, to get their hair done, especially as a woman. Female artists are very, 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 very expensive to maintain. If they're not in a position to do that, I mean, you can say, hey, even if it wasn't this deal, you needed some deal, you needed some type of investor or something to get you to where you are now. You were not going to be able to do it on this, you know, app. otherwise you wouldn't have signed a deal in the first place. I guess the thing right. is, not that they shouldn't so much sign a deal, but that they should be more equitable. In most cases, a lot of cases, if it's unequitable or inequitable, I should say, you can at least go back and try to once you start making money renegotiate and say, hey, I know this is what we agreed to, but since now you've made XYZ amount of money off of me, you recouped everything you put into me, plus some over, can we at least renegotiate and get this into a
0: place that's more equitable? Right. You know what this conversation reminds me of a bit? Have you been watching that ESPN documentary, The Last Dance, on the Chicago Bulls?
1: I haven't, but I've seen people tweeting all over and how Scottie Pippen took a bad deal.
0: Exactly. Exactly. And I mean, the narrative of that deal sounds a lot like what we're talking about now. I forget the exact details, but I want to say it was like either late 80s or early 90s. It was like. He signed some seven-year deal for less than $3 million a year. I think it was like $18 million for seven years. And then everyone, of course, is like, you're the sixth, seventh highest paid person on the team, but you're like one of the top five NBA players. How does this work? And he was like, well, you know, I had a family to feed and I wanted the security then. Obviously, he ended up making his money with other teams afterward, but... I mean, there's a perfect comparison there between him and the artist that we're talking about and the type of situations they've been in.
1: No, in Scotty's situation, I think people were saying, because they were like dragging Jordan, saying, oh, he didn't take a pay cut. He should have took a pay cut or something so Scotty could get more.
0: Yeah, they were dragging Jordan. They were like, you were making $33 million a year. You couldn't have negotiated on his behalf and knowing that all the power that Jordan had. So that's part of it, too. Right, right, right. I saw a couple years ago, you were on this short series called Money, Power, and Respect. And it was to, I can already see the smile. This is to highlight black women that are doing it big. And you were there as the entertainment attorney. And it's interesting. I think they kind of tried to paint you or picture you as this person that was a bit more combative or the person that was more, a bit more direct than everyone else. And I was like, really interesting. Mm
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So what was that experience like? How did that come about?
1: It's funny because the opportunity presented itself to me twice. What happened the first time? I think, who did I speak to the first time? Oh my gosh, it came around to me twice. I remember one point, someone reached out to me with an opportunity because a colleague of mine from law school, who's also an entertainment attorney, Rhonda Cohen, I don't know if you know Rhonda, she's a OG, she's an OG, music exec, she's at TV also. So Rhonda had reached out to the person, reached out to people looking for someone to be a part of the show. And she described the type of person she wanted. And so my colleague is like, I actually know somebody who fits that belt perfectly. And she referred me. But they ended up casting different people, women who knew one another, who had a long history with one another. And I think some of them shared an office. But for whatever reason, they were switching out the cast because some people were boring or some people didn't want to do it anymore. I don't know what happened. It came back around to me. I believe this time, Mona Scott's husband, Sean Young, referred me because him and I were friends via Twitter and then we had a mutual friend so we ended up meeting a person I think for Naima's birthday she's a former music exec and I believe Sean referred me again this time to Mona and to Rhonda, maybe I don't remember how it happened but I think the referrals came from a few different people and so they called me in to audition and so forth and so on and Mona was like okay I want her and that was it I was casted That situation is really interesting because they thought I was so quiet and meek at first, like the network did. I don't bother people, right? Typically, I'm not going to bother you. It's just if you bother me, I'm going to bother you back. But I'm never going to just, I'm not that person. But there was somebody who thought she was a bully, I think. Probably a couple of people who thought they were bullies, but not to me necessarily. But there was one who had this issue with me. I think I said on the show, I mean, I'm not going to revisit that. But I don't know that they tried to paint me as combative. I'm not really sure what that was entirely, but there was some type of angle, definitely. There was some type of way they were trying to, yeah, I'm just not entirely sure. But If that was your perception, that's interesting. I mean, I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just not entirely sure. But it was an interesting experience. I do think they put people in roles or showed people based on what they wanted people to believe about them. Whatever was attempted with me, I don't think worked. And I said it because of the initial press release and different things around the show that the network presented. It was like, why would you say that in a press release about professional women? They would present me one way, but then they say another girl graduated high school at 16 with honors. I'm like, hey, so did I. How come that's not mentioned in my press release? I graduated at 16 too. I graduated with honors too, from high school and from undergrad. Why isn't that included in mine either? There was something, I don't know, but it was an interesting experience.
0: So it's like there was already a production angle about what your story was going to be even before it started?
1: No, I don't think it was before it started because they didn't know. They didn't know. This was decisions that was made after, like during the press release and so forth and so on about announcing the show. I don't believe anyone knew what my angle was going to be with me because I didn't really talk too much initially. We were feeling one another out and opinionated and so forth and so on, but... Nothing really happened with me until the incident with that artist, the young lady who was a personal injury attorney who was trying to manage an artist. She, I suppose, had an issue with the fact that he came to me to be his legal representation, even though she was just managing him. And I'm like, how can you be in a music business if you don't know the difference between a lawyer and a manager? Me being his attorney does not step on your toes at all. If anything, as women, we can come together and kill it together. Why is it an issue? But because you want to make it an issue, I'll indulge you. And so that's how, you know, everything transpired from there. And then based on what was seen and heard during those interactions, that's the way the narrative was framed.
0: Got it. And it's interesting when, take a step back, and think about this, because I think that a lot of the love and hip hop and a lot of the work that Mona Scott Young has done has gotten a lot of mixed opinions, right? I think there's some people that appreciate it for you know, the entertainment that it is. They want something light. They don't want to look at it deeper. But then other people that feel like it's casting Black people, especially Black women, in a negative light. But then you have a show like Money, Power, and Respect, which did do its job to highlight people that are doing it and aren't just in relationships, like they're actually in high-ranking professions. So it's interesting that that content was there, but that isn't necessarily what gets talked about in the narrative of, I guess you could call it the Mona Scott Young love and hip-hop circles.
1: Right, well, you know what? I think a part of it is people didn't necessarily associate Mona with money, power, and respect. They really associated her mostly with love and hip-hop. Because if I mentioned that Mona was a partnership with Mona Me and Eastern, when I mentioned that, they would be shocked. I don't think she was necessarily a part of the brand. And it's because the show was so short-lived, that's probably a part of it. Why she really wasn't associated with it. It wasn't around long enough for her to, you know what I mean? She's at the events and the premiere party and so forth and so on. But I think because it was so short-lived, like they would have to do their research to know that she even had anything to do with it. They mainly associate with her with love and hip-hop. But speaking of it being short-lived, the interesting thing about it is that, you know, the reason why it ended was because one of my castmates sued the network. This is public information. I'm not revealing a secret. It was on a blog and everything, that she filed a lawsuit. I mean, it's not really a cause of action, but it's just one of the things she said in her complaint was that she was basically duped into doing the show because she was told that it was gonna be this uplifting show for highlighting black professional women. And instead, she's on a show getting dragged and, you know, defamed and so forth and so on. That was her claim. And she filed a lawsuit. And that lawsuit actually ended up precipitating the demise of the show because we never came back. We were just in discussions about season two and how the ratings were well on season one and blah, blah, blah. And someone from production was like, well, if we do a season two, you're going to have to be ready to come more to the forefront because some of these stories aren't interesting to viewers, but people seem... Somebody said to me, Tiffany, people really seem to like you. He was shocked. I'm like, why are you shocked?
0: What is that? (laughs) He he
1: didn't say I'm shocked, but that was his energy. Because he's like, people really seem to like you. He's like, I gotta say. And I'm like, I knew that because I could see on social media, you could see the hashtags, the feedback. You could see who's getting dragged week after week. And you can see who they're like, oh, yes, go girl. Oh, da da da. So you can tell. It's easy to tell. Even my castmate, Nakia... She's like, Tiffany, you would not believe my whole family is in here talking about you. Everybody likes Tiffany. So anyway, but me and Wendy, another one. Wendy, who's also a Gemini like me, a lot of people did take to us because they said we were the realer ones. We weren't, you know, up there. Their perception of some people were that they were up there, you know, acting high and mighty. So we probably would have had another season had my castmate not sued the network. I'm not saying she was wrong for suing. I'm not saying she was right for suing. I'm just stating the fact that we probably would have gone on to season two, but when that happened, we were on pause. They were sorting things out, and her entire case was dismissed, was thrown out, but it took maybe two years for that to happen. Well, it felt like two years. It took maybe a year and a half. It was a while before that happened. I remember she filed right after the end of season one, that November or December, and I believe not that February that came right after that, but the following February is when they threw the case out. Got so it. So at that point, it's like, we're not coming back to shooting. So yeah. But that was an interesting experience. Would I do reality TV again? I've gotten called for reality TV since then and actually considered it. So I probably would do it again under the right circumstances, but not on some, oh, certain types of shows. It's just not my brand. But a show about lawyers.
0: So you've been proposed with a few things, but you haven't said yes to anything.
1: No. I just turned one down like a month and a half ago. And then last year, April, I got and someone to post me about something too. I got a phone call about something too.
0: Are they mostly like similar type of concepts or if it's, you know, private, you don't Completely have to go into the different. details.
1: Like one is like, oh, a year ago, it was, they needed young, professional, unmarried black women and so forth. You know, they want attractive woman, you know, about the dating struggles and blah, blah, blah. You know, people have their different angles or whatever, but I'm like, I'm not, not my thing. I kind of did consider it. I was like, maybe I would, I don't know. But then I really, no. I wanted them to do an Atlanta spinoff, like when we were shooting Money, Power, Respect. That was a consideration, a really strong consideration from my understanding they actually had to cast picked out and everything. And I remember telling one of the producers, I told Rhonda, I was like, Rhonda, if y'all do Atlanta, because at the time I was like, I want to move to Atlanta. So if y'all do Atlanta, understand that I want to be down. I don't care if that's the way you bridge the gap, like, oh, the one from New York moves to Atlanta. I was like, but I want to be in Atlanta. But somebody needs to do an Atlanta version of the show or something. I mean,
0: something. Yeah. Especially with all the talent down there, especially with all the people representing talent down there. Yeah. No, I think it would work really well. So we're getting to the tail end, and I'm sure that you must get hit up quite often. When you're not getting hit up about reality shows, you're probably getting hit up about people asking for advice. How do they break in? How do they get to where you are? What are your go-to things? What do you normally tell people?
1: Oof. I mean, they have to go to law school, right? And they have to pass the bar. There's this one young woman who... And This is not judging her at all, but I used to see her at all these different events, and it was bar time, right? We know when people graduate law school, she introduced herself to me. She wants to be an entertainment attorney, blah, blah, blah. So I'm like, okay, I would see her at these different events, and I'm like, wait, it's finals time, but okay, maybe she has a bunch of easy electives. But then when it's bar study time, I'm like, how can I possibly see you out, and you should be studying for the bar right now? I'm confused. And I would say it to her. I'm like, I'm sorry, you told me you want an internship before you want this, that, and a third. What are you doing right now? Like, you have to be serious about what you want to do. She's like, I know, I know, I know, I know. I ran into her in September or so, I believe. And I was like, how was the bar? Because the bar, well, it's postponed this year, but bars, it's usually twice a year and it's the summer bar is the end of July. So I'm like, I said, like, how'd the bar go? She's like, I didn't take it. I was like, what? And she's like, I wasn't ready. I'm like, honey, I saw you out at all these different events. What are you talking about? So pass the bar, right? <laughs> Graduate, law <school> <laughs> Graduate law school, take the bar, first of all. And if you don't pass, you don't succeed, You try again. I know some people who, I'm not going to lie, I probably would have given up. Some people who really took it like five or six times. And I don't, I'm not saying I probably would have given up. I don't know because I've never been in that situation. But if that's what you have to do when you really want it, that's what you're just going to have to do. Buckle down. Take the bar, study for the bar, take it, pass it. Network, 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 but don't network while you're supposed to be studying for the bar, right? You got to pass the bar, but network a lot. Relationships are everything. Social media, it makes it easier. Like MySpace, I made some relationships with MySpace that I still have to this day. I just worked on a deal with an attorney who I met on MySpace about a decade ago. So network, I would say. Read. There's so many blogs, so much access to free information. Attend events. That's part of networking. Even if you're shy and an introvert and don't want to talk to people, if you go to enough events and people see you out, people will start to talk to you because they're going to recognize your face. It's times I've been out and people will say, oh, I saw you at such and such event. And I'm like, really? And like yes. I'm like, oh, yes. So people eventually talk to you because it's like, I see you in all the same spaces I'm in. What do you do? What are you into? The there are things of who you know. Some of the people say it's not what you know, it's who you know. Well, in the law, yeah, you need to know something too, right? You can't just know people. You have to know things also, But it's a great thing to be able to say you know things and you know people. So that's what I would say. Know things, know people. Study hard, meet up, stay informed, meet people. Don't be afraid to collaborate on stuff when you're starting out. But if you meet a client, don't be so quick to throw them off to somebody else because you're scared. Call another attorney in and say, hey, can you work with me on this? Can you show me this? If I give you this person, can I at least shadow you and see what it is you're doing? And just build on those relationships.
0: Yeah, I feel like the reaching out and the hustle with that is almost an adapted skill that needs to shift every time there's a new social media platform or new social network because people need to break out from the thousands of DMs that the people that are likely getting reached out to get on a regular basis.
1: That's why I say it's important to go out and meet people because me and people face to face, even in doing deals, I have a deal I'm working on right now, literally before We started this, got an email, and the person says, hey, Tiffany, great to finally see your name on a deal that I'm working on. This is opposing counsel. And he's like, I don't know if you recall, but we met at such and such such and such, do such and such at A&R at such and such label. I'm like, yes, I remember. I had to be in that place at that time for that A&R to make the introduction. And he introduced us. He said, hey, there's such and such as an entertainment attorney, I want y'all to meet. Now, hopefully, it'll be a lot easier for us to just come to terms and close a deal because there's some level of familiarity. You know, right. people tend to handle you differently when you've had face-to-face interaction with them and so forth and so on. So it's important to have that face-to-face contact, too, not just solely reliant on social media.
0: No, makes perfect sense. Makes perfect sense. All right. Before we let you go, anything else to plug or let the Trapital audience know about?
1: I don't know. I mean, do I start plugging clients? Like, hey, check out such and such album, such and such song? No.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Maybe one or two of the clients you're working on. We can do that. One or two of the clients you've been working for.
1: So one or two of the clients. Okay. Right now, let's see. I have an artist from Orlando named Mo. He's shaking up. TikTok and all sorts of things right now. He had like the number 16 or 15 or something viral song on TikTok. He is doing great. His a song called Out of There. It's a huge song. And Video just did a million streams yesterday or so. He's like in two millions or something on Spotify and like maybe the same thing on Apple Music. I can't even keep up anymore, but I think he's gonna do a lot. He's a rapper. Oh, I have a producer named Young Tego from Dallas, Texas who's doing a lot right now also. He's all over everybody's everything. I don't even know where to begin. A lot of the younger rappers he worked with, like Doughboy and NLE Choppa and NBA Youngboy and Ola Runt, a lot of Rod Wave songs. He's done a lot with Rod Wave. But he's... It's hard to call him up and coming because he's young, but the guy has like 50 freaking songs that he's done already. So it's like, how do you call somebody with 50 placements up and coming? And it's because he's so young; like he has a whole career ahead of him, but he's done a lot early. But he's still making strides. So I would say keep a lookout for Mo and Young Tego, rapper
0: and producer. Yeah. All right, dope. No, we'll do well. Tiffany, this has been fun. This has been a pleasure. And for the listeners, if you want to follow Tiffany, you can follow her at Black L Woods on Twitter or Instagram.
1: Yes, B L A C K E L L E W O O D S. It's like, do you know the name? Do you know the
0: reference? oh yeah legally blonde
1: yes yes yes
0: (laughs) yeah yeah exactly (laughs) of course well thank you all right tiffany thank Thank you so much for having me talk to you soon if you enjoyed this podcast, please tell at least one friend about this podcast. Word of mouth is still the best way to grow. So go to Apple Podcasts, go to iTunes, leave a review, rate the podcast. I will screenshot and share the podcast ratings on Twitter and Instagram. That can encourage more people to share the podcast. And if this podcast is your first introduction to Trapital, then make sure you check out the rest of the content. Go to trapital.co. That's T R A P I tal.co dot co sign up for the weekly newsletter get all the content there and also shoot me a text that's also a great way to stay in touch with travel content you can text me dan runcy at 415-234-3074 thanks again see you next week